take our Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy uh, for just a moment. Our, we're going to um, read just a couple of verses in 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, and then we're going to uh, step into some of the material that is on the little handout that the gentlemen are receiving for you. After we read these couple of passages, the I believe they're going to turn uh, our house lights down pretty low. I need the projector, and I need everything I can get out of the, this, uh, uh, this projector tonight for some of the slides that I want you to be able to read uh, what's on them. And so well, they'll be shutting the lights down quite low in just a moment. Second Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says in verse number uh, 15, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all Good works. Great verse. I'm sure you have memorized that uh, over the years, and it uh, fixes our mind on the fact that our Bible is given by God, breathed by God, and it's beneficial to us. It's profitable in our lives. In Second Peter and in chapter number 3, Peter recognizes that even in that time period in which the Bible, the New Testament was being written, there were problems coming in. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 16, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, W-R-E-S-T, or twist, rest, as they do also the other scriptures, not only the scriptures that Paul wrote, but the other scriptures as well, under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. These uh, two passages of scripture remind us that the word of God is precious. It is profitable and beneficial in our lives. But even as the New Testament was being written, there were uh, those who were twisting uh, or corrupting the scriptures that were being written. I want to speak to you this evening on a subject that I deal with every few years on why Community Baptist Church uses the King James Version of the Bible. In recent years especially, uh, there has been a, uh, a real uh, encouragement to use modern translations in a lot of evangelical churches that preach the Word of God. And uh, let me say uh, up front... That, uh, that this is not a matter that, that I think is worthy of fighting over or making a bigger deal than what it is. I'm glad when people read the Bible. I'm just glad when people read any Bible. But there are, there are some important things that as a pastor responsible for the doctrine in the church and the church being united in our doctrine that, uh, that I deal with from time to time over the years so that we can all be on the same page, particularly those who teach the Word of God here at Community Baptist Church. So from time to time, I uh, take a Sunday night and I look at some things about this, this issue of Bible translations and why it is that for 25 years we have used the, uh, the King James Version of the Bible uh, and why we ask all of our teachers at every level to only teach from the King James Version of the Bible and why that, that, that is an important enough thing that we, would, uh, that we would do that kind of thing. Uh, here's a couple of slides. Uh, Psalm 119.89, the slide uh, is this verse of Scripture that is important for us. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. There is no doubt about it. God knows what his word is. It's settled. Here's another quote from Psalms. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God magnifies his word. 
He even magnifies it above his own name. That kind of gives us a glimpse into how important God views his word. The Bible, God's word, is to me my milk, my water, my bread, my meat, my honey, my counsel, my lamp. That it's a light unto my path, showing me how to live. We would all agree that the Bible is extremely important to us. The Bible is... uh, is immeasurable in its impact in our lives. And so it's important to us to have confidence in our Bible. To be able to take our Bible and know when we read it, we're reading the very words God breathed. That we have confidence that it is God's Word. And that we can stake our eternity on what it says. And we can make decisions in life based on what it says. And so the Bible is extremely important. Now, we all know that we live at a time in history where there are all sorts of Bibles. You go into a store that sells Bibles and you can find all kinds of Bibles. And the, the rational question would be, are all the Bibles the same? Uh, is this Bible just as good as that Bible? Uh, are the Bibles all equal? Do they say the same thing? Do they read the same way? Are the Bibles equal? And I want you to, uh, to just look at a couple of comparative passages and you can answer that for yourself. Here's a passage of scripture from the book of Acts. Oh, good. Can you read that? Can you see that? Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, gentlemen up there. Acts chapter 8, verse 36, Philip is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, there's water here. Why can't, why can't I get baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he got baptized. Now, that's if you read the King James Version. If you happen to use what is becoming the most popular version amongst uh, strong Bible-preaching churches, The ESV, or the English Standard Version, which is a rewrite of the Revised Standard Version, which when I was a kid growing up, all the preachers said, this is evil, this is evil, this is the Revised Standard Version. I don't know. Uh, I just remember that as a little kid. But if you're reading the ESV, you'll have the Philippian jailer asking, what prevents me from being baptized? And then you'll have no answer. There is no answer in the the, uh, ESV. Why is that? Are all Bibles the same? Here's another example. This comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 33. If you read the King James Version, the Bible says, And Joseph and his mother, notice the distinction, Joseph is not his father. Joseph and his mother, Joseph adopted Jesus. But it seems that in Luke chapter 2, God distinguished the biological from the legal and did not say his father and his mother, but called him Joseph. And his mother. However, if you read in the ESV, you will read that it was his father and his mother that marveled at what was said. Is that a difference? Yes, that's, that's, that reads a little bit differently. Here's another example. This example comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10. If you're reading in the King James Version, you'll read, For the Son of Man has come to seek, and to, uh, to seek that which was lost. That's a great statement, isn't it? But it's not in the ESV. It's missing. Uh, are all Bibles the same? Here's another example. This one comes from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 16. It's, sometimes it is said that this is perhaps a hymn, an ancient hymn. Uh, it just kind of rolls like a, like a song would. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Amen. God became man. This is a great mystery. This is a, a, without controversy. No one will argue this is a mystery. How could God become human? If you read in some of the newer translations, the ESV is the one I'm illustrating here with, but you could the same thing be in the NIV and other uh, newer translations. Great indeed, we confess in the mystery of godliness, he was manifest in the flesh. Well, who's he? 
Why does it say he instead of God? Are all Bibles the same? Here's another example. This one comes from 1 John chapter number 5. 1 John chapter 5, if you read in the King James Version, the Bible will say in verse number 6 that there, by water and blood, the Spirit witness, because the Spirit is truth, Verse number 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Three in heaven, the Father, the Word. This is First John. You remember the Apostle John also wrote the Gospel of John, right? And the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1 starts off. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. The Word, the Word, the Word, verse 18, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When, the God, when John wrote the Gospel, and when he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, when he spoke about the Word, that speaks of Jesus Christ, okay? So we've got the Father, we've got Jesus, we've got the Holy Ghost, and guess what? These three are one. Do you realize that's the only place in a doctrinal letter in the Bible where it is declared that God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one. Only doctrinal reference where the Trinity is clearly and emphatically stated. Now, if you read in the modern translations, you'll read in verse number 6, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. The Spirit is one, testifies because the Spirit is truth. Okay, that matches verse 6 here. Verse 7, notice, verse 7 simply says, for there are three that testify. Well, that's, that comes off from verse number 8. There are three that bear witness or that testify. So they took verse 8, they took that part of verse 8, and they made it verse 7. And then the rest of verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, these three agree in one. And they made that verse 8. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three agree. So the verse 7 is entirely eliminated Verse 8 is divided into two, numbered 7 and 8. Are all Bibles the same? Uh, Are they equivalent? I think we would have to say, well, there's something that bears further understanding as to why there are uh, verses and passages in the Bible that are different, that either leave things out, or change important words. And, and because of that, I try to share with the church family every couple of years why we've made the decision 25 years ago to make the King James Version the official textbook of the church, our authority, and what we teach in all of our classes. Now, what, what seemed, seems to... Um, be a good starting point to me at unraveling why the differences is on this next slide. Up to the 1800s, up to the mid-1800s, people approached the Bible by faith. They didn't question it. They knew it was the Bible. They had faith in the Bible. The Bible was an inspired, inerrant, infallible, extant book. What did they mean by that? They meant the Bible was breathed by God. That's what inspired means. God breathed, word by word, breathed the Bible. It's inerrant. That means there are no errors whatsoever. It's infallible. That means it's totally trustworthy. I can stake my life and eternity on it. And I'm talking about the extant Bible. That's the existing Bible I have in my lap. It's not the originals that no one has ever seen for the last 2,000 years. It's the Bible I own. It's that I have confidence in the Bible I have. God breathed it. It's without error. It's trustworthy. And it's the Bible in my lap. Now, that was the approach that people had when they came to the Bible up until the mid-1800s. Something happened in the mid-1800s. They began to question the Bible. You see, it was in the mid-1800s that textual criticism was born. And the Bible began to be scrutinized and criticized by textual experts, many of them unsaved. And it raised questions. Can we trust the Bible? Is it inspired? Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? Is only the originals that no one's ever seen for 2,000 years, are they the only ones that were really without error? 
And the ones I have today, well, you know, we've got to just kind of figure that out through textual criticism. In the mid-1800s, something happened that introduced the big question mark with regards to the Bible. Now, there are two issues. There are two issues that we ought to consider individually and personally when we decide in our homes, in our own personal lives, when we decide what Bible am I going to read, am I going to have my devotions from, am I going to have trust and confidence, I'm going to have faith in this Bible as the inspired, inerrant, infallible Bible that I hold in my lap. Making that decision, there are two issues that I think it's wise for us to consider. The first issue is the issue of source. The issue of source. You see, when the Bible was given, when, when the authors, the human authors that God inspired, he, he, he revealed into their minds His truth, and then He breathed into them the words that He wanted them to write down on paper, and they wrote down by the breathing of God, the inspiration of God, they wrote down those words. Those words were the originals. We call those, or textual critics and scholars call those, the autographs. The, the actual document that Paul wrote when he wrote that letter. He only wrote it once, and that is the autograph. And if you wanted a copy of the autograph, you had to make a handwritten copy. You'd take the autograph that Paul wrote, you'd take a blank piece of paper, and you would copy it out by hand so that you could have a copy of that portion of the Word of God. And then if somebody wanted a copy of it, they might take your copy and they might write out a copy of what you had. And little by little, the Word of God got copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and spread from church to church around the Christian communities. That went on for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years. Now, you can imagine if I wrote out a paragraph and gave it to someone on this side of the road uh, room, asked them to write out on a blank piece of paper and hand it to the person beside them, and they wrote out, and they, that gradually went across the room, that if we took all of those pieces of paper at the end and compared them, we might find some pieces of paper that don't read exactly the same, where someone's eyes going back and forth, they missed a word, or they wrote a word down twice, or their eyes skipped a line, and they skipped a whole line. And so over 1,500 years of hand copying the Word of God, there were, some, there were some errors, some mistakes that the copyist made writing out and hand copying the Word of God that they had received, which was a handwritten copy that had been copied and copied and copied for hundreds and up to 1,500 years. Sometimes they were deliberate errors. We read a moment ago in Second Peter chapter 3, how that even as the Bible was being written, there were some people twisting what was being read because they didn't agree with it. The man Colwell, as you can see on the screen, said the majority of the variant readings in the New Testament were created for theological or dogmatic reasons. The only, the only portion of the Scripture you owned was Paul's letter to Timothy. And only one time in that letter, only one time in that letter was the deity of Christ declared without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You didn't believe in the deity of Christ. So you took the only copy of the Bible that you owned, the only portion of the Bible that you owned, and you changed it and made it He was manifest in the flesh. You didn't go through the whole Bible and take the deity of Christ out of every section of the Bible. You say, preacher, why do you say that? Because one of the arguments against uh, some of the things I'm sharing with you is that the deity of Christ is taught in other portions of the Scripture. So why are you concerned that it's left out of that passage in Timothy? Well, because that may have been the only part of the Word of God that guy had. And he took it out everywhere in the part of the Bible he had. And so... Colwell said that the majority of the, the changes were not made by accident. They were not honest, accidental mistakes because the I skipped a word. But they were made purposely for dogmatic reasons. And then the next 
slide quotes that verse that I read a few moments ago from Second Peter, how they were doing that intentionally, even in Paul's day, or they were twisting the Scripture in Paul's day. So this went on. Where does our Bible come from? Well, it came from those original autographs that were copied by hand for 1,500 years. And then something happened. A printing press was invented. For the first time now, instead of making handwritten copies, you know how long it would take to make a, your own hand, handwritten copy of the Bible? I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's a significant amount of work. So finally, in 1454, the printing press was invented. So we can now determine what is the right reading of these, in these manuscripts, these handwritten copies. We can put it on a printing press. We can make a hundred copies of it, and they'll all be exactly the same. This changed everything. The first Greek text was printed less than a hundred years later in 1516, and the manuscripts that were used, manuscripts are handwritten copies of a Bible or a part of, a, of the Bible. So the autograph was the original the manuscripts were the handwritten copies. Once the printing press was invented, they began to take the handwritten manuscripts and compare them and come up with a text. A text is a printed portion of Scripture. Autograph, the original. Manuscript, the handwritten copy. Text, what comes off from the printing press. So they took the manuscripts from... The areas where Paul had started churches, the vast majority of the manuscripts came from Turkey, Greece, and Europe. And then in 1633, the Texas Receptus, that was the text based on the manuscripts that had been collected from the areas where the New Testament churches were planted. And those manuscripts were scrutinized and compared and they came up with a text that could be printed that would be received by all the churches. So it was the received text or the Textus Receptus in 1633. The manuscripts and the texts that were in that family of manuscripts were called the majority text or the Byzantine text, the Asia Minor text, the traditional text or the received text. And one of the Crucial pieces of information, when this came about in the 1500s, the 1600s, when the printing press was invented and they came up with this Texas Receptus that they could print. This is all in the Greek language. We're not talking about English. All of the manuscripts that they had, the handwritten copies, were 500 years from the autographs or up to 1,200 years from the autographs. So between, they were between 500 and 1,200 years old, which means for at, for at least 500 years, the manuscripts that existed at that time had been copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And the ones that were still existing, because you, you wore out your Bibles, right? You, you wore out what you were using, and they would have to make another copy from that. And so, so the, the older ones were all wore out and, and discarded or whatever, and so... The ones that they had to work with were between 500 and 1,200 years. That was 500 and 1,200 years of hand-copying scriptures uh, by the time they got to where they could put it in a textual form. So, here's what we ended up with. We ended up with all of these 5,200 manuscripts that they had to work with, the, the family of manuscripts from, the, from Asia Minor and so forth. All of these manuscripts compared and put together into one Greek Bible called the Texas Receptus. So we had one Greek Bible based on a family of 5,200 manuscripts, and that became the Bible that was being printed uh, in the early days. Then something happened in the mid-1800s. In 1850, 1859, a guy by the name of Tiesendorf found a handwritten copy of the New Testament at the foot of Mount Sinai, the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Many today, myself included, do not believe that's the actual site of Mount Sinai. But, but there was a monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery, built at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Tiesendorf discovered and named a, a, a manuscript, Codex Sinaiticus. And 
it was dated back to 350 A.D., which means that manuscript was at least 150 years closer to the originals than any of the manuscripts that were used to put together the Texas Receptus. About the same time, another guy, we can skip ahead one here, in 1870, in Rome, in the Pope's library, another manuscript was found. It was named Codex Vaticanus. It was also dated back to the same time frame, 350 years after the originals. This is, this is, this is huge. This means we now have a couple of manuscripts that are at least 150 years older than the oldest manuscript that gave us the Texas Receptus. Well, this, this, as a result of this, some theories originated. A couple of guys by the name of Westcott and Hort in the late 1800s, after these were discovered, these two men, their last names were Westcott and Hort, they proposed that the older manuscripts were more accurate than the more recent ones. So instead of the Texas Receptus, based on manuscripts that were 500 to 1,200 years after the originals were written, they now have in the 1800s two that are dated all the way back to only 350. Since they're closer to the originals, they must be more accurate than what was worked with before. If there are any changes, these two manuscripts must be the right reading and the later manuscripts must have the wrong reading. So they came up with a new Greek Bible. We had the Texas Receptus based on the manuscripts from Asia Minor. Now we have the Westcott Hort text put together, printed in Greek from the manu- from two, basically two manuscripts uh, that were discovered at Mount Sinai and uh, at the Vatican. And others followed the lead. Others uh, took up with that idea and they produced a more uh, with newer Greek Bibles, the Nestle's Greek text, the United Bible Society Greek text. Most all English translations are either translated from the Texas Receptus or the Westcott and Hort or the Nestle's or the United Bible Society. Those are the four printed Greek texts. The Bible in the New Testament, the, the New Testament printed in Greek. And so uh, those are, and, and those Greek Bibles, by the way, uh, are based on, to date, only 30 manuscripts. They had the, the first two that they found, then they found some more. They end up with 30. So you got 30 manuscripts dating earlier than all the Texas Receptus manuscripts. And so that group was called the Alexandrian manuscripts. Now, this is where textual criticism kind of blossomed. They began to criticize. They began to scrutinize. And they had three rules. The older is better than the younger. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are more important, more accurate, and better. And we should lean upon them with literary scholarship more heavily than we lean upon any of the newer manuscripts, the ones that came from 500 to 1200 A.D. By the way, that is a, that is a theory the older is better than the younger. There is an opposing theory. There are those who believe that the reason they existed from antiquity to the present is because in antiquity, when they were copied by hand, the copyists discovered there were errors in them. And so they sealed them up and put them away and never used them. Now, if you never use something, it never wears out. The ones that they had confidence in and they used, they wore out. The ones that they had no confidence in and they didn't use lasted in some clay jar or in some form of being sealed and set aside and unused. And then in the 1800s, they were discovered. So the older is... Better than the younger? Not necessarily. 
the older may be worse than the younger because it is older because it was known to be corrupted and it was not used. Now, again, that's, that, those are theories, but they're the theories that textual criticism uh, works with. They also had a theory that the shorter is better than the longer. They said it's more logical to believe that if you were a copyist making a copy of the Word of God, you might add stuff to it more readily than you would take something away from it. And so the shorter is probably the more accurate because the longer would indicate that someone added to the original. Well, that's textual criticism. That's man's reasoning, proposing theories to criticize, to critique the text. And the difficult is better than the simple. It is more likely that someone would try to simplify the text to make it more understandable than make it more difficult to understand. So if you have two alternate readings and one is simpler than the other, then probably the more difficult is the original and the simpler is a corrupted version. And so textual criticism took these theories and they began to apply them to the Word of God. Now here's what we ended up with as a result of textual criticism. We have 5,200 manuscripts, all of which are, have a, a, an uncanny uh, agreement coming from the areas where the New Testament churches were planted that have given us one Greek Bible, the Textus Receptus, that has been the standard for translation since the 1600s, up until the mid-1800s. Then we got 30 manuscripts that have given us three Greek Bibles that are all different. Now, the question is, are there any differences? One of the questions, is there any differences? Let's go back one more time for a second. Thank you. Are there any differences in these Greek Bibles? And, as a matter of fact, there are differences. When you compare the Westcott Hort, the Nestles, and the United Bible Society texts, you'll find out that these three Bibles, uh, let me rephrase what I said. Is there any difference between these texts, these Greek texts, and the Textus Receptus? And there are. When you compare these Greek texts to the Textus Receptus, you find that the Westcott, Horton, Essels, and UBS leave out 2,165 words that are in the Textus Receptus. There are 1, 000, there's 2,165 words missing in the Greek New Testament. Comparing them, there are 350 changes that question the deity of Christ. Now, again, no, virtually nobody had in the manuscript era when they were copying by hand. No one had a whole Bible. You didn't have a whole Bible. If your church had one book of the New Testament, you were blessed. And there are 350 changes. Changes were made regarding the deity of Christ by people who didn't believe in the deity of Christ to every portion of the Bible they had in their possession. But they didn't have the whole Bible. Therefore, you've got the deity of Christ left out here, there, questioned here, there, wherever, because of the changes based on the deity of Christ. And again, this next slide again reminds us of this key text. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, we did that one. I didn't, I didn't get your head with me there. Sorry about that. This text in 1 Timothy, God was manifest in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. What a great, what a great statement of the deity of Christ. What a great uh, uh, statement that, that upholds the, the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and it's changed. Someone, either someone added the word theos, God was manifest, or someone changed the word theos to the personal pronoun he, he was manifest. It was changed one way or the other, somewhere, at some point in time. And so changes to the deity of Christ. Now, is there any difference in these Greek Bibles? Um, yes, let's, let's go, jump back to this. Uh, not only uh, those two lines, but significant passages are left out, and the, and the Sinaitics and Vaticanists disagree between themselves 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. So there's not even close unity between the two most important. And so uh, th that's all about the source of the, of the Greek Bible. We haven't said a thing about English. The Greek Bible, the, the, uh, 
the taking of the Greek Bible and putting it into uh, text form where it could be printed. Now, let's move to the English now. Where do the English Bibles come from? Well, the King James Version and its revisions, because the King James Version is, it was originally translated in 1611, if you had a copy of it, and you can buy copies of it. It is in print, but you couldn't read it. The old English, the language, the, the spelling of the words, the, you, you couldn't, you'd have a hard time reading the 1611 King James Version. What you read in, a, in reading the King James Version that you've bought during your lifetime is about the seventh revision with regards to the spelling of words and that kind of thing. And so I say the King James and its revisions. Uh, that would include the modern King James, the new King James. The King James and its revisions all come from the Texas Receptus. All other English translations come from one of those three. Westcott, Horton, Nestles, or UBS. So uh, here's, here's what we've got. You've got, you've got 5,200 manuscripts giving you one Greek Bible that's giving you one English Bible. Or you've got 30 manuscripts that disagree amongst themselves, giving you three Greek Bibles that are giving you hundreds of English translations. That's the reality of what history has given to us in the translations issue. Now, all of that has to do with source. Where did my Bible come from? I read English. I don't read Greek. I, I, well, I, I could read a little bit of it, precious little. I read English. My English Bible was translated from the words God breathed. He breathed Hebrew words, Aramaic words, and Greek words. He did not breathe English words. He inspired his word in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek languages. Those languages, the, the, those Bibles... The originals were then hand-copied, then put in a text, and then printed as Greek-Hebrew Bibles. Now we come to the issue of translation. That's the second issue. When we, when we decide a, a Bible to use, I'm concerned, first of all, where did it come from? Where did it come from? What is the source? And... The last screen showed you where the source, how the Bibles are sourced. They are traced back through Greek Bibles to manuscripts. And those manuscripts do not always agree. Now, the issue of translation. This is the second issue. And the issue of translation uh, boils down to philosophy of translation and to word choices. First of all, Translation philosophy. There are two basic philosophies of translation. There's the literal translation philosophy called formal equivalency. The literal translation philosophy simply says that the goal is a word-for-word -word literal translation, more accurate but potentially more difficult to read and understand. The translators translate and they leave it to the teachers to teach. That's a literal translation philosophy, that the job of the translator is not to make it easy for you to read, but to make it accurate in what you read. Literal equivalency means that, that the Word of God is going to be put into the English language word for word as accurately as possible going from one language to another language. And then it's up to teachers to study and teach what that translation means. Now, the King James Version was translated under a literal translation philosophy from the Texas Receptus. So if it would be your conviction or your opinion that the Texas Receptus would be more accurate because of where it came from, its source, then the second issue is getting a translation into the English language from that Texas Receptus and the King James Version translators believed that their job was to translate, not to necessarily make it easy for you to read. Accuracy was more important than smooth reading. Now, if you were to use the Nest, if you wanted an English Bible translated from one of the three Greek Bibles that came from the 30 manuscripts, then you might want to use the American Standard Version. Because the translators of the 
Greek Bibles in the in, in that group they use that literal translation philosophy, as did the ESV also claims to have used that same same philosophy of translation. And so those would be good word-for-word accurate translation from what I would consider a corrupted Greek Bible. But those who don't agree that it is corrupted, those who follow Texas Receptus, that the older is better, the shorter is better, the more difficult is better, and they use the the critical text that Westcott and Horton Essels and UBS produced, they may want to use either the ASV or ESV if they want a literal word-for-word translation philosophy. There's another philosophy of translation, and it is the interpretive translation. It's sometimes called the dynamic equivalency. We're, we're going to, the translator is going to figure out what he thinks God meant then he's going to put it in a smooth, easy-to-read sentence so that you can smoothly and easily read what the translator thinks God really meant when he said what he said. This is dynamic equivalency. The idea is simpler to understand, easier to understand, but it allows greater translator bias because the translator has to figure out what he thinks God meant. And then put it in words that are easy to read, smooth in its reading. That's called interpretive translation philosophy. Now, those, those are, that's kind of how it falls out. The NIV was, uh, that was at one time the, the most, I don't know whether it's still the most popular. I think ESV is closing in on it if it hasn't already surpassed it in the circles that want to use the critical text or an English translation from the critical text. The NIV at once held the market in evangelical Christianity in America, and, uh, and it was written with the idea of trying to make it smooth, easy to read, and not necessarily uh, uh, accuracy not being the first consideration. Word choice is another matter. Word choice. There, there are, there, there's no question that when you're dealing with the King James Version, you're dealing with an English language that is still alive, and has changed a lot over the last couple of hundred years. And so word choices are an issue if one uses the King James Version. The word let in Second Thessalonians, prevent in First Thessalonians, superfluity of naughtiness. And so word choice is an issue, particularly with people for whom English is not their first language. And so when people run up across words they don't understand, words that perhaps have changed their meaning somewhat, in the way they're used in the English language. The question is, what do I need? Do I need a new Bible that's smooth and easy to read, but I don't know that I can really trust? Or do I just need a good dictionary? By the way, that's why we have some King James Version dictionaries in our bookstore that someone can take that, if they're using a King James Version, they can have a dictionary that that takes some of those words that are a little bit more difficult and explains them. Now, here's the summary of the issue. We've got a source issue and a translation issue. Did God speak the words that are in my Bible? And how would I know if I wasn't a Greek scholar? Can I trust my Bible? And this is huge to me as an individual. When I have my devotions, when I make decisions in life, when I read the Bible, I want to be reading something I have confidence that it has come from God And no one has tampered with it. I can believe what it says. I don't want to read it and wonder about its source. About whether those two manuscripts that were so old. And I wonder in my mind, why are they so old? Could it have been that they were known to be corrupt and therefore were never used. Therefore they never wore out. Therefore they lasted until they were discovered in the 1800s. Could it be that, that some of the readings are wrong in my Bible? I, I don't want to deal with that. I want to have confidence that when I hold God's Word in my lap, I know I'm holding a Bible. The purpose of this is not to deal with, the, with, the, with this subject, but let me just interject. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about revelation, inspiration, preservation, and illumination. 
God revealed to the mind of the Apostle Paul his truth. He inspired him to write it down without error. He then preserved. He promised to preserve his words. Can I believe that the Bible I have is a translation from the Bible that God preserved through the ages without error? And then the Holy Spirit illuminates my mind as I study the preserved, inspired Word of God revealed to the minds of the original authors. And so, source is really important to me. And then translation, that's a no-brainer to me. I don't want to paraphrase. I don't want somebody chewing up my steak, spitting it out on a spoon, and letting me eat it. Because I'm too lazy to chew it. I want God's words. If it's difficult to read, it's difficult to read. If it takes more work on my part to study it and understand it, I want to put in the work to study and understand it. I don't want somebody giving me a paraphrase, what they think God meant. I want you to, I want to read what God said. And then I want to study what God said. And I want to pray to the Holy Spirit to help me understand what God said. I don't want a paraphrase. So, here's a, here's a passage of Scripture that I ran across that will illustrate some of this. I ran across this passage of Scripture when I was studying in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, you understand there are two problems. There's two issues. The issue of source and the issue of translation. I ran across this passage and I was reading it. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for man not to touch a woman. Okay? That's, that's pretty understandable. I then looked it up in the ESV. I didn't put it up there because, because we have younger children here. So I, I decided not to put up the phrase that they used uh, in the NIV or in the ESV. In the NIV, it says, now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to do what the ESV says. It's good for a man not to marry a woman. Oh, okay. And then I begin to wonder, this must be a source problem. I bet if I look up in the Texas Receptus, the Nestles, the uh, UBS, and the West Cotton Hort, I bet you I'll find that in the Greek text from which the English is translated, that the Greek words are different in these different Greek Bibles. So I did. I looked up this verse in the Greek Bibles. And you know what I found out? I found out there's no variant. A variant is a place in the original text, in the Greek text, where you have different readings between different manuscripts. They're called variants. I found out there's no variant. Whether you go to the manuscripts that were found at the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, or the manuscripts you found in Asia Minor, in in the area where Paul planted the New Testament churches, They're all the same. There is no variant. They all read the same. They use the exact same Greek words. So I began to study that Greek word. I found out that the Greek word that's translated touch has a very specific meaning. It means to touch. It's used 36 times in the New Testament. It was used of the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. It was used in, it, throughout the New Testament when a person touched something or touched somebody. The Greek word translated touch does not mean marry. It does not mean the English word that they use to translate. It means to touch. It is, that is word for word accuracy. Now the ESV has promoted itself as the Bible for those who want a literal word for word translation. But, and I can't vouch for the rest of the ESV. They may have done that everywhere else. I may have found the only place in the ESV where they didn't follow what they said they were doing. They read the chapter and they said, you know, I don't think God really meant not to touch a woman. I think what God really meant was to not this or to not get married. And that's what God really meant. And so that's how they translated into the English language. In other words, the translators interpreted what they think God meant and made that a part of the Word of God. 
And so when you're counseling a person and you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, do you counsel them? You know, it's just a good thing not to be touching one another till you get married, if you read the rest of the end of the context. Probably a good idea. not saying it's, it's the most wicked thing you could do, but, you know, it's probably a good counsel for singles. You know, it's probably a good thing not to touch. Or should you counsel them, you know, you really need to just never get married. Or, you know, what you really should do is not do what the ESV says. What did God breathe? God breathed that. He didn't breathe this and He didn't breathe this. These are man's interpretations of what they think God meant. That they made a part of the actual Word of God. That crystallizes in my mind the issues that I face in dealing with the English language Bibles. Where did it come from? And what was the philosophy of translation by the ones who did the translating? So, let me say that I've got some advice. Here is my practical advice. Practical advice, number one, approach your Bible with faith. Make a decision on what Bible you believe God wants you to use. Now, if you're teaching at CBC, if, if you are in a position at CBC where you are using a Bible before a group of people at CBC, that decision has already been made for you with regards to that level of ministry. You use the King James Version. But in your personal life, if whatever Bible you decide to use, approach that Bible by faith. Have confidence in the Word of God. Here, let me give you an example of the, how, that, how that can, can be important to you. Here's 2 Kings 8.26, talking about a guy by the name of Ahaziah. He was 2 and 20 years old when he began to reign. 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, same guy, began to reign, 42. What do you do with that? Second Kings said he was 22. Second Chronicles says he was 42. Can you be 22 and 42 at the same time? Is this an obvious mistake in the Bible? Well, as it turns out, the ESV says he was 22 and 22. The NIV says he was 22 and 22. And yet when you go back to the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text says... He was 22 and 42. Now, here's where textual criticism comes in. I watched, I watched a little clip by some professors at some different Bible colleges talking about this particular passage of Scripture. And one of the professors said, obviously, it's an error. And if we don't make room for textual criticism to fix the errors in our Bible that were caused by a scribal error, then we compromise the entire doctrine of inerrancy, which means the Bible's without error. He said, you have to, obviously it's an error. Then I listened to another professor at a different Bible college who explained the same passage of Scripture. And he said, without faith it's impossible to please God. We must approach our Bible on the basis of faith that God preserved His Word. This is correct. Ahaziah was 22. Ahaziah was 42. I can't understand it. I can't figure it out. But I will not change it on the assumption that the Bible has an error in it. The Hebrew text behind the ESV, the Hebrew text behind the NIV, both say 22 and 42, 22 and 42. The translators approach the text with the preconception that it is an error and they fixed it. So that you as the English reader wouldn't have to worry about the error in the Hebrew text. Now, if I had another 30 minutes... I could step you through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles 
and show you why God said he's 22 when he began to reign and he's 42 when he began to reign. But let me just say a little clip, just a little. I won't take 30 minutes. I'll just take maybe 60 seconds. When you read those two passages of Scripture, you will read over and over again that God was dealing with the ungodly house of Omri and his son Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Ahaziah was a king of the southern kingdom. Omri, Ahab, and Jezebel were kings and king's wife of the northern kingdom. Ahab and Jezebel's daughter married Ahaziah's dad. And God points out how that the southern kingdom became infected with the wickedness of the house of Amri and Ahab. And at the time where this, these texts occur, God was fed up and he sent Jehu. He sent Jehu to kill the king of the, southern, uh, the northern kingdom, to kill Ahaziah, the king of the southern kingdom, to kill Jezebel, Ahab had already died, and to kill every living relative of Ahab and Jezebel. He wiped out the dynasty of Omri because of the perversion and wickedness of that dynasty. And when he did so, he also wiped out their influence in the southern kingdom by having Jehu kill Ahaziah. When you go back and you add up the lengths of time when Omri reigned, Ahab reigned, Ahab's son reigned, Ahab's grandson reigned, and Ahab's great-grandson reigned. When you add up the lengths of the reign and add them all up, when Ahaziah began to reign, he was at the end of a 42-year dynasty of wickedness that had infected the southern kingdom that God was wiping out. Ahaziah was 22-year-old biologically when he began to reign. But spiritually, he was 42 years old from the dynasty of Omri. And God said, you're done, and wiped him out with the Omri dynasty. You know something? If you approach your Bible with faith, you will run into places that you can't explain and can't understand that looks like a contradiction. If you'll get on your knees, say, God, I have faith that you preserve your word. And as, as clear as it looks to me like, an inc- like, a, like a contradiction that I can't figure out, I have confidence in your word. I believe your word. And I'm going to study. And Holy Spirit... Show me what you meant when you said Ahaziah was 22 and then you said Ahaziah was 42. Approach your Bible with faith and confidence that God's Word has been preserved and it is true. That's practical advice number one. Practical advice number two is don't criticize. I say this to anyone who teaches the Bible here at CBC. You will never hear me. I don't think you'll ever hear me say a better translation is or what this really means is. I do not exalt myself above the translators of the Bible. I do not assume that I can correct their shoddy work. What I may say is let me explain to you what this means. But I will not exalt myself as a critic of the Word of God. Because I don't want to strip people's confidence in the Word of God. I want to build people's faith in their Bible. Have faith as you approach your Bible, even the parts you can't understand. Don't criticize. Build up other people's faith in the Bible rather than criticizing the Bible and tearing down their faith. And finally, help. Help people understand God's Word rather than suggesting there's a problem in the text. There are no problems in the text. There are only problems in my understanding of the text. The Bible is perfect. 
I need to study it to understand it. So I want to help people to do that. Let me say, um, I mentioned this next uh, screen, and so I mentioned this just a couple of weeks ago, this word re- prevent. And so I'm just, let's just skip over that um, because I've, dealt, I've just mentioned that in a sermon just, uh, just recently. So the position that I have held personally is that only the King James Version is trustworthy. It's the only one I trust. Do I ever look up anything in the ESV? Yes. Do I ever look up anything in the NIV? Yes. Regularly. I, I compare Scripture with other... I, I look at those other translations as commentaries, as opinions, as to what somebody thinks God's Word says. I never read the ESV and think I'm reading the Word of God. I never read the NIV and think I'm reading the Word of God. I read them as commentaries and opinions on the Word of God. That's me personally. That's... that's You know, my position personally, I have total confidence in the King James Version because of its origin and because of its translation uh, philosophy. Only the King James Version is used by any teacher, and only the King James Version and New King James Version is sold in our bookstore. Here's what our documents, our church documents say. Our Articles of Faith says that we believe that as originally written, uh, the, the Bible is verbally inspired. That is, God breathed Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek words when they were originally written. He then preserved them without error. And we have confidence in the Greek Testament, commonly referred to as the Textus Receptus, and in its English translation, the King James Version. That's in our doctrinal statement, our Articles of Faith. Our Constitution Bible says the King James Version translation of the Bible shall be our only official instructor in doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And then in our Joining the Core Membership uh, Leadership books, uh, only, uh, this is instructions to our teachers, only use the King James Version, every class in ministry. Accordingly, the King James Version will be the only translation used in teaching, reading, and memorizing in our ministries. And finally, at uh, times, we use material that includes scripture from other translations. That's printed material we buy from other sources. This is not an endorsement of or an encouragement to use those translations of scripture that may be quoted in those other books or resources that we may use from time to time. Now, let me close by saying I, I, I am not at war over translations. I, you very seldom, if you, you have to come here two or three years before you hear me address it. It's about every two to three years that I'll take a Sunday night and I'll say, here's where we are, where we've always been 25 years. Here's the reasons why. We have members in the church that use all kinds of translations. That's a personal opinion, personal decision every family makes. I'm not at war with anyone. I'm just happy you're reading the Word of God, whatever translation you use. But when it comes to the unity of the doctrine of the church, when it comes to people who are in a position of teaching the Word of God here in the church, we require that everyone teaches from the King James Version. It's the only version you'll hear preached from the pulpit. Uh, it is where, we, where I personally and where, and, and since I... My wife and I were the ones God used to plant the church. We had the privilege of writing the doctrinal statement and the Constitution bylaws. So we wrote into it those convictions, and we've abided by them for 25 years. And that's where we stand with the translation of the English Bible here at Community Baptist Church. There are, there are people who go to an extreme. Ushers, do you have those? If, here's an article written by a, a pastor. His missionary actually was in Nepal. And uh, this is an article about King James onlyism. There are those who who use the phrase King James only. If you're interested, there's not. I, there might be enough for everyone. I don't know. But if you're interested, raise your hand. Let let them know so we can get those to everyone who is interested in reading that. It, it because there are extremists. Uh, I am not an extremist. There are people who teach that if you weren't led to Christ from a King James version, you're not saved. That you can't get saved from the teaching or preaching or witnessing from any other translation. I am not an extremist. I do not believe that in 1611 the Holy Spirit inspired the translators to rewrite the Bible. There are those who believe that every Greek Bible was corrupted by the 1600s. There was no preserved Word of God. And God selected those translators and he re-inspired, he breathed in them the words he wanted them to record in English this time 
so that the English King James Version, from cover to cover, words, italicized words included, everything is the breathed words of God. And any missionary that's going to translate the Bible into their native tongue should always and only do so from the King James. And you should never look up anything in the Greek or Hebrew because they're corrupted. Only the English King James is the Word of God. I am not an extremist. I do not believe that is accurate. I believe that is foolishness. But there are many that teach that. There, I shouldn't say many. There are some who teach that. So what I just had given out to those who were interested is a great, I would agree with every statement in that. He did a superb job of lying, laying out what it means to believe that God preserved the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words and that our King James Version is an accurate translation of the preserved Word of God into the English language. But the preserved Word of God is the original languages that God breathed when He originally breathed those words. And so, um, for those who are interested, you can, you can enjoy that. Thank you for your attention and uh, this long service uh, this evening. And um, I hope this will be a help. And uh, in this year, of co- uh, a year we've gone through COVID and so much has changed in America, I have really felt impressed to go back and just kind of remind ourselves of some doctrinal things that, that we have stood for for 25 years and just to help people understand what the background, what the doctrine, what the foundation is and the reasons behind it because everyone has the responsibility of seeking God themselves personally and I'm not at war with anyone that is doing that. And I commend you for your love for God and His Word.